Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Galatians chapter 6. That's where we'll be this morning as we finish off our sermon series in Galatians, looking at Paul's final benediction, his final warning to the church there from verses 11 to 18. So says this, See what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, your spirit. Brothers, amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we just thank you for the chance we have to just continue to worship you. I pray that you are indeed lifted up high this very moment, this very day. Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified, and I want to speak of you. I want to praise you, and I praise your name. Lord, there's no amount of gifting that can make this turn out well outside of you. So, Lord, by your Spirit, help me to preach this sermon with the necessary power and appropriate affection. Use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. As I've been reflecting... There's been, uh, I'm not really a fashion guy, okay? I don't really care, to be honest. I just go to the store, Old Navy, whatever. The mannequin looks good. Hey, let's buy that. <laughs> but I've noticed a, 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 a trend of going backwards to take fashion tips. And something that concerns me is, you remember the 80s? <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't. That should be a time where we block it out in our memories. Raiders football gear? Yeah. Tight rolled pants. Overalls with one flap undone. And how about those hairstyles? That's That's not even good. Mullets? Who had a mullet? Come on, be honest. (laughs) Two people. Guys had mullets. Ladies had mullets. Ladies were walking fire hazards with all of the hairspray that they would have in their hair. My parents' generation wasn't any better. Leisure suits? I don't even know what that is. Suits aren't leisurely. I don't... Anyways. But I do know this. Short coaching shorts. The ones that go like, whoop. Talk about immodesty. And that was for the guys. I saw a picture of my uncle the other day going 
uh, parachuting, and I went, what are those shorts that he's wearing? You know, I, I, I remember looking through photo albums and wondering, what are they thinking? It's all a sign, I am convinced, that we are all fallen people. You know, the waterfall haircuts, the, the whatever else may go on. Of all the things that have been worn throughout history, what do you think the disciples would have thought was the weirdest? Think about it. Because I think that the weirdest thing that they probably think that we wear as a fashion statement is quite simply a necklace with a cross on it. Right? And it's quite the statement. Everybody has one. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian or not. It doesn't matter if you go to church every Sunday or not. Everyone's got a necklace with a cross on it. And I will argue that regardless of all the weird things that came out of the 80s and then bled into the 90s with the fluorescent pink and green and the tracksuits that came along with that and the bowl cut, I think the disciples would think that our jewelry options were probably the weirdest things we could have. And we're going to talk about that a little bit as we continue on here. So why does Paul say, as we just read, that the only thing that he's going to boast in is in a cross? Paul begins his closing statement summarizing his thoughts and and contrasts his cross-centered ministry with a self-exalting ministry of the false teachers. This is his summarizing statement of his whole letter. He's going back. He's going to do this. This is his conclusion. So he wants us to listen. He wants us to hear what he's about to say. So that's why in verse 11 we see this. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hands. Have you ever been in a texting conversation or an email? That's all I got right now. And they just always writing in caps. And you're just like, what are you yelling about? What is going... Like, they're always like that. It doesn't matter if they're like... Anyways... See what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Listen to what I am telling you. Some people will come, and I've been taught this myself, that this was because he had bad eyesight and he was writing this part by himself. Or uh, he might have uh, had from all the beatings that he suffered, and he suffered a lot of beatings for the sake of Christ, that he had problems writing, so he was writing with big letters. But in the context, the cultural context that we're looking at here, see what large letters, pay attention. He's doing it all in caps. And now he's going to tell us what the summary statement is for you and I. Pay attention about what I'm about to say. The boldness of the handwriting answers to the force of the apostle's conviction. He is convicted. He wants to get our attention. And Paul wants to re-emphasize the central message of the letter and his own personal investment in it. So then we get into verse 2, or verse 12 to 13. And as you guys are probably looking through your your notes, I would would challenge you to flip over the page because I changed some things. And we're going to take a look at the empty boast as he talks about in verses 12 to 13. He says this, 
It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. Motivation is a big problem going on with these false teachers. Why in the world are they wanting these people to be circumcised? To go through with this law? Why are they so passionate about how they have to do something in order to make themselves right before a holy God? Because there is absolutely nothing that you could do to make yourself right before a holy God. He had to make you right before himself. That's called the atoning work of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. So he comes along and says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. They're showing off. And he gives us a reason. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They're saying to so-and-so, Hey, you need to be circumcised so that they themselves don't have to suffer for the sake of Christ. The thing that they are treasuring the most is an act not the action that has been done for them. So they come, and they'd say this. These teachers wanted to make a good impression outwardly. And when these false missionaries go home, they wanted to declare at their next missionaries' meeting of how much they have to show for their efforts. That's what they're doing. See, true religion is inward. Although it always works its way out, it starts within, where the Holy Spirit regenerates a sinner's heart. The problem with making something like circumcision the essence of Christianity is that there's, this is only an outward sign. It is merely external, something done to the body, to the flesh of sinful self-reliance. It's saying, I can do this on my own. And not recognizing that only God can do it for you. True religion is not based on outward works. It's based on an inward faith. And like I said, that does come out. But it starts in the inside. And these missionaries' motives were wrong as they wanted to be able to brag about what they had done. Not not what God had done for them. Their motives were wrong. They were running away. They didn't want to be hurt for the sake of the gospel. So as long as I get as many people as I can to follow me and to do what I'm doing, then I can go back to the the Jews of the time and say, hey, look at me. See, look, it's not that bad. They're getting circumcised too. So Paul comes and he points it out. Points out the emptiness of their boast by first showing that they just want to make a good showing so they don't get persecuted. See, as I look at this, I ask this question, are you cultivating humility in your life and trying to crucify the human pride that so easily comes inside? And how can you do this? You must go to the cross. It's at the cross our pride bubble gets popped. There's no room for boasting at Golgotha. We must crucify the flesh and walk by the Spirit to cultivate humility and avoid the false teacher's pattern. So he continues on in this passage. So not only is it because they, they didn't want to get hurt that they're boasting in the cross, 
For, for even, so he says this, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may be persec- not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And then he goes on, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law for they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Motivation matters. So this is a massive warning for me as I read these two verses. As a pastor, it's a massive warning. If you are a teacher, it's a, a teacher to our students or, teach, and, or to our youth on Tuesday or to our kids downstairs, this is a massive warning. A challenge not only to make sure that the message is true, but that my motives are right. This is the challenge when one feels opposition. The only way I can combat the pride that wells up within me is to daily crucify those passions and desires. The same thing that Paul talks about in chapter 5, verse 24. Christians inevitably face this temptation that these missionaries face, compromising on what the Bible says, because the cross has a way of inviting persecution. It arouses opposition because it says that we are sinners before a holy God. The cross says to everybody, you're wrong and you can't fix it. And nobody likes that. I don't like being told I'm wrong. I hate that. That's my wife. No, I'll go pout for the rest of the day because I'm wrong. I don't like being told. Nobody does. And the cross gets it up all up in our face and says, you're wrong and you can't do it on your own. In fact, you have nothing to do with it. You need a regenerated heart even to have the faith to believe. There's a story. Uh, there's a, a story of a pastor who was, once had a conversation with a woman who was wrestling with the claims of Christ. She had begun to realize that surrendering to God's will for her salvation would require radical changes. So she says this, If I believed that my friends at the pool were really going to hell, she said, then I would have to tell them about Jesus, wouldn't I? Well, that seems pretty rock-solid logic to me. But then I wouldn't have any more friends. Maybe not. People generally do not like being told that they are sinners who need a Savior. But this is what it means to be a Christian. It means standing up for Christ and and his cross. Paul is addressing the wrong motivation here with these false teachers, with these missionaries. They were giving in, they were compromising because they didn't want to get persecuted. They were also compromising so that they could go back to their church and say, look how many converts I've got. Look how many people came to Jesus through my ministry. I'm a pastor. You know how many pastor conferences I go to? This is a problem. It's a big problem. It's a problem for all of us, checking our motivations. But it also causes us to say, do you see how if we do not cherish the gospel, how it affects our witness? If I truly don't understand the holiness of God, I downplay what hell truly is. Therefore, I don't have the urgency to tell my friends who I say I love that they need Jesus. 
I'm going to challenge you with this. This isn't in my sermon notes. If I truly love the person in my life who doesn't know Jesus Christ, if I truly love them, the first thing I'll say to them is the gospel. Because it matters. It's important. The gospel is what sends us out to the world. It's what sends us across the street to tell our neighbor about Jesus. It's what, tells, it's what spurs me to tell my kids about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what causes me, as we'll get into later, causes me to live a radically different life than what I have. So for us, the application is clear. Either you glory in the flesh or you glory in Christ. You pick one. You don't get to do both. There's a, sometimes, um, there's no such thing, biblically, as nominal Christianity. Do you see that? There's no such thing as riding the fence. You either are or you're not. You know, the analogy is riding the fence. At some point, you get really comf- uncomfortable if you stand on a fence long enough. And you're going to have to pick. God's very clear on this one. See, when you know the significance of Jesus' death, then you can agree with Paul's desire to boast only in the cross. And when we do, it shows the emptiness of everything else. When we know the significance of Jesus' death, then you can agree with Paul's desire to boast only in the cross. Because the gospel gives us something to boast about, as we see in verse 14. But far be it, from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Do you hear the all caps? But far be it. These guys are going to boast in what they've done to your body. The only thing I'm going to boast in is Christ's. Paul's entire theology of justification is reflected in the way he uses this one simple word, boasts. In this context, on this side of forgiveness in the new life, the only boasting permitted is that of the justified sinner who has surrendered the autonomy of self to the Lordship of Christ. That's what we were singing. The very first song we sang, All Creatures of Our God and King. That's what the song's talking about. Also, we see that great song, The Rock of Ages, boasts of redemption. In my hands no price I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Boast means to glory in, to be consumed with. So when we read these words, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross. Paul is utterly consumed by the amazing thing that God has done for him. We're not, we need to boast in this. To boast except in the cross, as he says, boasting in the cross implies that you place your confidence in Christ and his work for your salvation. You're not trusting in your religious acts not the amount of converts you got or how big your ministry is or your reading streak in your Bible app. Cross-exalters rest everything in the, what Christ has done. 
cross-exalters believe that Jesus lived the life we could not live and died the death that we could have died. Those who boast in the cross simply say, this is for my peace. Jesus died in my place. Boasting in the cross implies that God accepts you because of the work of Christ, not because of your work. And you can say, because of the cross, the wrath of God will not be poured out on me. Because of the cross, I am united with Christ. Because of the cross, I am dead to those, this world, and all it claims on my life. Because of the cross, I have become a new creation. So boast in the cross. Revel in it. Rejoice in it. Treasure it. Paul was always boasting about the cross. You see that throughout this letter. I hope you see it throughout this letter. If you haven't, then I failed. Paul is always boasting in the cross. And God forbid that he should ever boast about anything else. Christ crucified meant the world to him and it should to us. The cross is not just something to boast about, it's the only thing to boast about. See, I, 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 come, uh, I come from a great pedigree. I do. A great heritage of God's amazing saving grace. Paul comes from a pretty good one himself. You know, and I could come here and I could stand upon the merits of my family way before me, about my parents, about any of these things, all the times I went to church growing up. Let me tell you, I never missed a Sunday. Never. Even when we were on vacation, we went to church. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I didn't like it as a child. I could boast all day long. Paul could boast all day long. Many of you could boast all day long. And it's absolutely empty. It means absolutely nothing. So Paul gives us something to boast about. The only thing to boast about. The cross is the only thing to boast about because it means that God loves us enough to die for us. That he saved us through the death of his own dear son. It means that we have been redeemed, that Christ has paid the whole price for our salvation. The cross means that we have been forgiven of our sins. That Christ offered himself as an atoning sacrifice to take away our guilt. It means that we are justified. That God now accepts us as righteous in his sight, not because of our righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness. His wrath has been turned away, and now we stand innocent before him. To glory in the cross is to stop trusting in our own merits. Our church attendance, our worship style, our devotional habits, our social involvement, our theological orthodoxy, the number of converts we have, and to start trusting in the merits of Jesus Christ alone. The cross rejects any merely human attempt to please God. It declares that the sinners must be justified before God and by God. 
not because of any works of their own, but because of the atoning work of Christ, not because of anything that they have done or could do, but because of what Christ did once when he died. And this only happens for those who repent and believe. That only happens for those who repent and believe. This is what Paul is boasting about. If this isn't something to boast about, I have no idea what you're boasting about. As Kevin, or my brother Kevin was reading and talking about today, it is the thing, or praying about, it is the thing that gets me up in the morning. If it wasn't for the gospel, I don't know where I'd be, regardless of my pedigree, of my heritage. It's the cross. It's the gospel. And he continues on, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, this is what Paul is saying. I don't care about what is happening around me. I have Jesus. You see the, 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 the peace that that offers you? Our world seems like it's crumbling apart. And I'm going to argue with you. I'll argue with you all day because that's what I do. That the world that the world is no worse than it ever has been. It's just full of sinful people. It's always been sinful. Since Adam and Eve came in, the world has been sinful. It's getting worse in different ways. And sometimes better in other ways, but it's still sinful. So sometimes I'm a bit of a control guy. So here I am. The world's falling apart. Maybe my home's falling apart. Maybe... My home's fine. It's actually getting better. We're slowly making it better. My physical home, by the way, I mean. You know, whatever it is for you, maybe you feel your life is just falling apart. The world around you is falling apart. You feel like you're standing on quicksand and everything's just falling apart. Do you see what this does? You see what a proper sight of the gospel does? It gives you a firm foundation. It gives you a foot to stand on. It says, in other words, I don't care what's happening around me. I've got Jesus. Who cares? You can take everything. I still have Jesus. You can't take that from me. I'm his. And he is mine. Jesus got me. Yeah, amen. Boasting in the cross means more than simply believing that Jesus died for our sins. It also means living a crucified life, though. You are called to live this out. So live it out. Live as though the world has nothing for you and Christ is everything for you. Does your life show that? Does my life show that? Does your life show that you treasure the gospel above all things? That it's the ultimate treasure. The model for the Christian is the world has nothing for us. Christ is everything for us. This is the daily power of the cross. Can you look at your idols, your money, your success, human praise? Oh man, we all struggle with being a man pleaser. Power, peer approval wanting attention, ungodly romance, and say, I would not give 
anything for you. See your idols for what they are. They're pathetic. Crucify them. They're dying things. They're not attracted to the person who sees them for what they are and sees Jesus for who he is. So, what are you boasting in today? If it isn't the cross, how is it changing the way you live? The Galatians had a choice between the cross and circumcision. It was either or, not both. The cross of Christ is the sufficient ground for salvation for all sinners. What are you resting in? If it is the cross, shall that not compel us to go to our neighbors, to go to around the world, to yell from the mountaintops, Christ died for our sins and rose again. I was reminded about this the other day in Matthew thirteen forty four. It's Jesus' parable. And it says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Like, that's impactful. I had to ask myself, as it was a missionary telling me this, do I feel that the, the gospel is worth everything? Is that what I feel? I had to ask myself, do I treasure the gospel? Do I treasure the cross? And what am I willing to give up for it? When I repent and believe in the gospel, it means that we are justified, that God now accepts us as righteous in his sight. His wrath has been turned away, and now we stand innocent before him. When we know the significance of Jesus' death, then we can agree with Paul's desire to boast only in the cross. And there will be a willingness to give up everything for the sake of the gospel. Because it's everything. It means everything. You know, there's a... I've said it, I've said it I think a few times while I've been here to different groups, but there's a Moravian quote. The Moravians were a group of people from Europe who were very, very, very strong in missions. That was their heart's desire. And there's a quote that says, Preach Christ, die... And be forgotten. The reason why they could say such a harsh statement was because they cherished the gospel so much. I don't care about anything. I don't care about being in the history books. I don't care about any of that stuff. I have Jesus. I have Jesus. So when I see the significance of Jesus' death, then you can agree with Paul's desire to boast only in the cross. But not only that, he continues on in verses 15 to 16, and he talks about this new world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. The cross has done what nothing else could do. It made us a new people. This is why Paul says that there's an action that comes out. You know, our faith is inward. It's an inward working of, and then it comes out. There is action that comes from it. If you are saved, there will be a life change. You don't have a choice. 
That's not your option. This is what will happen. You've been called by God. He has justified you. He is regenerating you. He will sanctify you. You don't have an option. You will become more and more like Christ. I'm not saying you're going to be perfect because, you know, regardless of what our moms and dads told us when we were growing up, we're not. And I don't know any, like, how do kids grow? This is a sign How do kids grow up being told that? I'm a parent. There's no way I would tell my kids they're perfect. Christ has made us a new people by the work on this cross. We see this. Paul really flushes this out in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The new creation talks about the whole process of conversion. It is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, the giving you of a new heart. It is a chart transplant that happens. When you are a Christian, you have a new heart. Your desires are different. That's why when you become a Christian when you're older in life, like an adult, and then all of a sudden you realize that you're not laughing at that joke anymore that you did before, you know, that TV show that you really like to watch, not really appealing anymore. That's the Holy Spirit working in you, regenerating you through the power of his word. It's a daily process of the mortification, the desire to kill sin, and bringing back to life. This continual growth in holiness leading to eventual conformity to the image of Christ. The new creation implies a a new nature with a new system of desires, affections, and habits, all done by the supernatural ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. There's no spiritual gymnastics. There's no 12-step program to to have a deeper life. There's no quick fix. There's no book on how to be a better Christian. Actually, there probably is, but I don't know about it. There's not a seminar that can produce this type of transformation. If you are a Christian, you are a new creation. And that's only done by an act of God and His affecting a new thing. So what does a new creation look like? It's Galatians 2. 19-20 For though the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. These wonderful verses are all about boasting in the cross. And and they put the new creation together with it. A person who is united with Christ who died on his behalf or her behalf, is never the same person again. That's what baptism is the picture of. The old died new. That's why we dunk people. Because it's a picture, it's an image. These are wonderful verses. He has become, you are becoming a new creation. 
Are you glad this is true? Are you glad that you are a new creation? Christianity is not about being a nice person or trying harder or just being religious. It's about becoming a new person. And this new life is made possible by the cross. And as new creations in Christ, we are now fit for a new creation. As Paul continues on in verse 16, And as for all who walk by this rule, God calls us to live by a standard. There is a standard. And there is peace and mercy of God upon those who remain faithful to the truth of the gospel that Paul had originally preached. There's a pastor who once said it this way. Once more, this reminds us that theology matters, that theology is important, that good, sound, gospel-centered theology is essential to both the health and life of a church. Ultimately, this is something for which the whole church is responsible. When we know the significance of Jesus' death, then we can agree with Paul's desire to only boast in the cross. And it gives us a new life. But furthermore, in verse 17, we see this. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. I like that. <laughs> it's like, I'm done. It's like mic drop time. I'm just going to drop the mic and walk out. I'm tired. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. Stop bugging me. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul is talking about the actual marks on his body. He's not talking figuratively, he's talking literally. And these are the marks of following Jesus. This word marks, sigmata, are marks or scars on the body. But more importantly, the word actually is talking about especially the types of marks that are brands used to mark ownerships of slaves. What Paul is saying in that one word is a powerful statement. Not only does his body bear the marks of what it means to follow Christ, he's also saying, I am a slave to Christ. And again, it doesn't matter because of Jesus, right? Paul was branded. He was Christ's slave. By this point in his ministry, the apostle had really taken a beating. Among other things, he had been stoned and left for dead. In, the very, in one of the very cities that he's writing this letter to. And Paul's suffering had left their marks on his body. In Luke, the same verb, bear, is, is used of disciples who must bear their own cross. John uses the word for Jesus carrying his own cross to his execution. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to bear some scars. You will bleed. It may not be in your body. It will be in your heart. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, in fact, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So I'm telling you this. 
being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean your life gets better. It means you have an everlasting joy. It means you've been made right before a holy God. It means I have hope in a world that offers no hope. It won't be easy. As the great line for Aslan, C.S. Lewis's book, in, in response, you know, they describe Aslan as saying, he's not safe, but he's good. And he's good. I don't know how I can communicate any more about his goodness. He's good. And he's good all the time. It's the gospel. It's what gets us up in the morning. It's what spurs us across the street. It's what sends us across the world. It's how we can mourn differently. The same type of mourning that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. We mourn differently. It changes how we interact with one another. Or even another church on the streets. As long as they believe the gospel. This passage shows us that Paul's great love for the Savior. He not only bore the spiritual marks of the believer, he also bore the literal marks of his obedience to Jesus. So I'll ask you this. How much do you love the gospel? I had to ask myself this all week. So you get to now. How much do I love the gospel? How much do I treasure it? And what am I willing to give for it? Give up for it, sorry. Not give for it. You can't buy it. When you know the significance of Jesus' death, then you can agree with Paul's desire to boast only in the cross and we can face whatever is coming. So what? I don't know if I have to say this. Paul was always boasting in the cross. And God forbid that we should ever boast about anything else. It'd be this beautiful building about all of our accomplishments, about how we get into the community, whatever it may be. God forbid that we boast in anything else but the cross. The cross is not just something to boast about, it is the only thing to boast about. The cross is the only thing to boast about because it means that God loves us enough to die for us. That he saved us through the death of his own dear son. It means that we have been redeemed, that Christ has paid the whole price for our salvation. The cross means that we have forgiveness for our sins, for those who repent and believe that Christ has paid the price for our salvation. That Christ offered himself as an atoning sacrifice to take away our guilt. That means that we are justified before a holy God. That God now accepts us as righteous in his sight because of his own righteousness that has been imputed upon us when we, repeat, when we repent and believe. 
His wrath has been turned away, and now we stand innocent before him. So when we know the significance of Jesus' death, then we can agree with Paul's desire to boast only, only in the cross. So as you leave this place, what are you boasting in? And how does it show in your life? I'm gonna, we're going to sing a great song about the greatness of our God. Will you stand with me?